Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're still in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be here for a while. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the pews there and turn to page 953, all the way in the back. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you today. It's a gift from us. So again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, it's easy to have ears for someone else. But Lord, we pray that we would have ears for ourselves this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I have a question for you all. It's a simple question, but probably not a question we often think about. Why did God save you? Why did God save you? You were dead in your sins. You were an enemy of God. You lived in rebellion against him. You were a sinner separated from God who deserved death. And yet, God, through his great mercy, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And so through his life, death, and resurrection, you are a ransomed, justified, adopted child of God. Good news, right? Great news. But why did God do this? We often ask the question, how does God save us? We have answers for that. Or what must I do to be saved? But have you ever considered why God saved you? Why did he save you? There's not only one answer to this question. I do have one in mind. 
But the Bible tells us that God saved us because he loved us. God saved us for the praise of his own name. These are great answers. But there's another answer that's just as good, that's just as biblical, and just as important. God saved you so that you might be holy. Not only that we would be considered holy because of what he has done for us, but that you would live a holy life in response to what he's done for you. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. J.I. Packer says, Holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we might be justified, so we are justified in order that we might be sanctified or made holy. So God saved you so that you would be holy. So in the verses we'll be studying this morning, we will see the apostle Peter present this truth as he makes this shift in his message. Remember, he's writing to these elect exiles who are scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And up to this point, facts have been stated about the great salvation that believers have in Jesus Christ. The last two weeks have been amazing because we are just reading all these amazing gospel-centered truths. But now in verses 13 through 21, and basically throughout the rest of this book, we're going to see Peter start to give commands. Salvation has been described, and now Peter exhorts Christians to live in light of that salvation. So in our text this morning, Peter commands all believers to be holy to pursue a life of holiness. This is often a neglected teaching within the church. And it's often a neglected practice in the life of a believer. And if we're honest, we don't give too much thought about holiness. We don't want to give much thought to holiness. We like our sins and dying to them is painful. Almost anything is easier than growing in holiness. And yet, the Bible very clearly teaches us that the true Christian life involves growing in holiness. You will find very few explicit commands in the New Testament that tell us to take care of the needy in our community, and none that speak of explicitly giving a command on how to take care of our world. And yet, there are dozens of verses that command us to be holy. And I don't say that to make you think that caring for the needy in your community is unimportant or caring for our world is unimportant. But according to the Bible, holiness 
for every Christian should be important and not neglected. And so the main point of the message today, what I hope motivates you to live in obedience to God is this. A firm foundation in the grace of God leads to hope and holiness. A firm foundation in the grace of God leads to hope and holiness. Take a look at verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, we see this shift. There's a transition to what Peter has just laid out at the beginning of the first 12 verses. That's why we see this word, therefore. It's pointing us back to what Peter has just said. In the opening section of this letter, Peter celebrates what God has done for believers in Jesus. What has he done? He's elected us. He's chosen us before the foundations of the world. The Father foreloved us. The Spirit sanctified us, set us apart, and Christ has redeemed us by his blood. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We are promised an eternal inheritance that is kept by God. God has promised to guard our faith, to preserve us till the end. And our trials are necessary because God uses them to refine us. And we're privileged because we live in a day in which God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And a day is coming when Christ will return. And when he appears, we will be fully sanctified purified from all sin, and we will enter into the fullness of God for all eternity. And this is because of God alone. This is not because of our works. It's because of God's great mercy. So there's a lot tied into that word, therefore. Because of all of that, Peter tells his readers in verse 13, to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, the hope that believers have is not this wishful thinking, like I hope it doesn't rain or snow today. This hope involves the idea of assurance. Meaning what is hoped for will come to pass. Our future hope is sure because it's rooted in something that has already happened in the past, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what is this hope? It's a hope that when Jesus returns, when the final judgment happens, those who believe in him will receive grace and not wrath. We will receive our final salvation, our full salvation. And so Peter encourages these Christians who were facing various trials to set their hope fully on the grace that will come. 
God wants his people to have an undivided confidence in him. And yet we are half-hearted people. We have confidence in one thing and then confidence in another thing. We are half-believing in something, half-believing in something else. But Peter is calling us to set our hope fully on the grace. Because the day in which we live is often filled with trials and sorrow. So believers must place their hope fully in the coming of Jesus. And they are to do this in two ways. Peter gives us two ways. By preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. We are to set our hope not by being optimistic or trying to cultivate happy feelings about the future, but Peter is telling us that we must fight. We must work hard towards this. We are to prepare our minds for action, to get ready. The more literal way of saying this would be to gird up your loins. Back in Peter's time, men wore long flowing robes, not like, not jeans like men wear today. They were long flowing robes. And so in order to get ready for work or to go to battle, they would have to gird up their loins, meaning they would tuck their robes into a belt in order that their legs could move. They wouldn't be tripped up by the robe. The modern day equivalent of girding up your loins would be like rolling up your sleeves. So Peter is saying, do the same with your minds. Don't let anything hinder your minds. Be disciplined and prepared for action. The Christian hope is a reality to be acted upon now. And so in order to live out this hope, we must be sober-minded. The opposite of sobriety is drunkenness. A person who is drunk has lost all ability to function properly. They cannot think straight. They make bad decisions. And so in this verse, Peter's not only saying that believers should not be drunk on alcohol. He is telling believers to not be intoxicated by the world they live in. There's a way of living that makes us dull to the reality of God and gets inebriated, gets drunk on the attractions and beliefs of this world. And so being sober-minded is to have spiritual self-control, to discipline your heart and your mind. And what Peter is calling us to do here is something that we see all throughout the New Testament. Think about Colossians chapter 3. What does the Apostle Paul tell the Colossians to do before he gives them a list of actions as they are to take putting on the new self? He tells them to set their minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And he talks about Christ's resurrection and Christ's coming. This preparation of our minds for action, this sober-minded thinking helps us to recalibrate our minds to what is actually true. Because the Bible teaches us that we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we remember this, but often we forget that we live in a fallen 
world. When trials come into our lives, we often think that they're bigger than they really are. We get frustrated and we get bitter. We get drunk on the perspectives of this world. It happens slowly and discreetly. But through movies that we watch, through television shows, through the news, through social media, through podcasts, all this information makes our thinking get foggy and unclear. And this is exactly why we need to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. We need to daily, as often as we can, think about the great salvation that we have in Christ. To remind ourselves through the reading of God's word, through prayer, through meeting together in small groups, through corporate and then private worship. We must think about what Christ has done for us. Think about the amazing benefits and privileges that we have in the gospel. And when we set our hope on those things, on our eternal salvation that we have in Jesus, we will have spiritual sobriety. Our trials will be seen as opportunities to be faithful to Jesus and to grow in him. We won't be drawn in by the false ideologies of the world because we won't be of this world. We are commanded, this is a command, to set and constantly reset our minds on the grace that is coming to us. A firm foundation in the grace of God leads to hope. A hope that motivates us to think and live differently. But this firm foundation in the grace of God should also lead us to holiness. Peter calls us to action in verses 14 through 16. He writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The main command in this section is in verse 15, where Peter says, be holy in all of your conduct. This is the action that he's calling us to, to live holy lives. And the motivation that Peter gives for this command is the relationship that we have with God. Since we've been born again, we have this new identity, new status as the children of God. We are adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. And as his obedient children, we are urged to be holy. Holy means set apart. God is holy. He is separate from everyone and everything in both his character and in his deeds. And then back in verse 2, Peter says that we've been sanctified set apart by the Holy Spirit for our salvation. And now here we are commanded to be set apart for an ongoing obedience to Jesus, a practical everyday holiness. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, gives us a great definition of what holiness looks like. 
He says, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. We find it described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. Agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. And so to be holy, Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. We live an active life of opposition to sin and obedience to God's commands. But let's be honest, holiness gets a bad reputation. We often have a lot of misconceptions about holiness. We often visualize this person who is holier than thou. Or when we hear the word of holiness, we think of, well, that means I have to get rid of all the fun things that are involved in my life, and then I just have to live some sort of boring life. These are misconceptions, though. Because Jesus refuted the holier-than-thou legalistic lifestyle of the Pharisees. And pursuing holiness actually brings happiness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart. That means happy are those who live lives of holiness. Jesus promises that you will have a happy life if you live a holy life. Blessed are the pure in heart. So holiness is not boring. It brings joy. Yes, it means that you have to give up some things. But the things that you are giving up are things that will destroy your life. And the things that you gain will bring so much more joy and they'll last for eternity. Holiness means that you've been set apart by God's grace for God's purpose. And here Peter calls us to holiness, and it consists of two sides. There's a negative side of his call and a positive side of his call. Negatively, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Positively, you are to be holy as God is holy. So let's focus on the negative. We have an old sin nature that we were born with. The life that we were living before believing in Jesus was dictated by ignorance. We were ignorant of God's grace in Christ. And so we lived our lives according to the sinful pleasures and influences in our lives. And what Peter is saying to his readers is that even though they've become believers, that old sin nature is still there. Your old sin nature is still there. It still calls to us, right? It tries to lure us back into our old ways of life. And when life gets hard and suffering comes, it would be easy to slip back into those old ways. Many temporary comforts are offered. But Peter is saying to be holy, to be obedient children of God means that we have to not go on living the way that we used to. 
We should not give in to the impulses of sin, even if it's accepted by our society. God's call has brought Christians to Christ, but it's also a call to deny sinful impulses and sometimes abstain from cultural norms. And this makes us strangers in the society that we live. All of us have a sin nature. If you don't believe me, let's look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So, all in agreement, we have a sin nature. And our sin nature is quick to conform to the world around us. Peter reminds us that a necessary part of the Christian life is that we have to, on the regular, say no to sin. And so holiness means to say no to sin. It means to say no to temptation. It means to say no to society. It means to say no to our flesh. We are not to conform to the passions of our former ignorance. So that's the negative. Do not be conformed, but the positive. Look again at, or at uh, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the negative, don't act the way that you used to act. The positive, act like God. Stop being like you were in your unregenerated, unredeemed ignorance and start being like the one who redeemed you. We are called to be holy because God is holy. Our holy God set us apart to live in a way that reflects his holiness. Although we do it imperfectly, right? But we can be holy. We can because God is the one who called us to be holy. He called us to salvation. He called us to be his obedient children. And he called us to be holy like he is. He chose us to be holy. And Peter tells readers to be holy in all of their behavior. Not in just some areas, but in all areas of your life, you must be holy. So this doesn't mean that you just go to church on Sunday, participate in some religious activities. It means that you must be holy in all areas of your life. Your life has to be shaped and transformed by the God who made you, the God who called you, and the God who saved you. But how do we know how to live lives of holiness? Well, through God's word. Here Peter even points us to the scriptures, right? In verse 16, he says, As it is written, the call to holiness is grounded in a scripture reference. When Peter quotes, You shall be holy, for I am holy, he's pointing back to the book of Leviticus, where this statement is said over and over again. Peter often uses the story of the people of God, the people of Israel, as the backdrop for the Christian story. And so in Leviticus... God commands his people to separate from the evil practices of the people and society that they were living in, to be holy. 
And so what Peter is doing here is he's letting his reader knows, readers know that as Christians, we must be set apart from the culture around us. We must live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God, in a way that represents him. How we conduct ourselves in this world reveals to whom we are dedicated to. Peter calls us obedient children. And so as his children, we should desire to be like our Heavenly Father. And I understand that there may be some of you here who have had broken relationships with your fathers. You may not have a great image of what a father is like, but our Heavenly Father is a perfect father. He is a loving father. He's a father that we should all look up to and want to be like. And so some of you may say that you're a follower of Jesus, but does the way in which you live your life reflect that? Unlike Israel, we aren't distinct from the world in the, the ways that we eat or the, the things that we wear, but for us to be distinct is in how we obey everything that Jesus commanded us. Right? How do we know to live lives of holiness? How do we do this? Well, we do this by reading God's word, obeying God's word. In verse 2, Peter says, we've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then he says, sorry, in verse 2, Peter says that we've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus tell us to do in the Gospels? Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will follow my commands. And in the Great Commission, which we looked at last month, Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. Doing what Jesus commands will help us to live holy lives. It will define us as exiles and strangers in this world. And so our holy God of grace is the one who defines the holy path that we must walk. And that path is found in his word. We are to be holy as God is holy, and we learn to live holy lives by reading and obeying his word. And so as we set our hope fully on the grace to be revealed and we pursue lives of holiness, Peter also commands us to do another thing, to conduct ourselves in fear. Take a look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he is the God of grace who is coming. He is the God who is holy and set apart and calls us to be holy. And here in verse 17, Peter says that God is our Father. This is a recognition of his love and authority. He has the right to lead, to guide, and command us, and we should obey as his obedient children. But not only our Father, he is also our judge. Often we don't have a full picture laid out in our minds of who God truly is. We kind of pick and choose the things that we like and then ignore the things that we don't. 
But the Father that we call upon is also our impartial judge. He will judge everyone according to their deeds. And he will do this fairly and without bias. And so our intimate relationship with the Father doesn't give us license to live how we want. So Peter commands us to conduct ourselves, to live our lives in the fear of God during our time of exile. But when the Bible speaks of fear in this way, it's not in reference to being afraid of God, being scared of him, terrified from him, but it's speaking of this reverent awe. If we recognize who God really is, then we will truly fear him. We will have a deep respect for who he is. And this fear of God is healthy for our growth and holiness because we cannot hide things from God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He knows the sin that you're hiding. The Bible says that we will give an account for our lives. And so what we do here in our time of exile actually matters. It matters. The way in which you live your life here, right now, matters. And so if you continue to live the way that you lived before Christ, this suggests that this hope is not, your hope is not really in God. It's in something else. And so knowing that our Father is the impartial judge leads us to not conform to the ways of the world. It motivates us to pursue holiness because one day we will stand before God and we will have to give an account for our lives. It's true of every single one of us. This should motivate us to fear the Lord and to live holy lives. But where does this strength come from to actually set our hope to be holy, to fear God? What makes all of this possible? God is a holy God, and he's the one who is judge, but to the believer, he's also our Redeemer. He's also our Redeemer. Take a look at verses 18 through 21. I think you're going to like this part. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We sang that song earlier. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin on that cross. I get what the writer is saying, but we do know, right? What does it say in the text? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. How much, what did it cost? It cost the precious blood of Christ. That's what it cost. But we'll never understand what that means, though. That's what the author's getting at. So where does our strength and motivation come from? Where does the strength and motivation come from? You do what God calls you to do because you know what God has done for you. 
God doesn't just demand that we would be holy, and he would be, it would be okay for him to do that. He would be just to just tell us, you, you need to be holy. He is our creator. He can tell us to do whatever, we, whatever he wants. But he doesn't just demand that we be holy. God has done a saving work for us, in us, that enables us to pursue holiness. And what is this work? It is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came to redeem us from an empty life inherited by our forefathers. God knows that we are not holy. He knows that we are sinful. He knows that we will naturally conform to the patterns of sin around us. But God has ransomed us from the captivity of sin and the evil influence of the world through the death of his son, Jesus. And so when Peter uses this imagery of Christ's sacrifice like that of a lamb in verse 19, he's pointing back to Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. God's final judgment on Egypt was the punishment, the death of the firstborn. Every family in Israel, all of the people of God were to take a lamb and to slaughter it and kill it and take its blood and smear the blood over their doorposts. And when the Lord passed over the land, he would pass over the homes that were marked with the blood of the lamb. So get this. When God passed over the people of God, they were freed from the slavery in Egypt, but also freed from God's judgment. They were freed from God's judgment. And so because we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, when the final day of judgment comes, God will pass over his people. So while we are to fear the Lord and his coming judgment, Peter points us to trust in the sacrifice that God has provided for us. He also makes the point to say that our salvation was not an afterthought. It was not God's reaction to his world gone crazy. From the beginning, this was God's plan. In his mercy, God planned to send his son to set us free. Jesus lived as a man, but he also lived a holy life in thought, in word, and deed. He lived in perfect conformity to the word of God. He was obedient to his father's plan. And so we owed God a debt that couldn't be paid with all the silver and gold in this world. Jesus paid that debt with his precious blood. The cost of our redemption was the blood of Jesus. The book of Revelation says that Christ's blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so through the death of Jesus, our sin has been paid for. Our unholiness has been cleansed. 
We've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. And because he's been raised, we know that we have new life. We have victory over sin and death, and we receive the Holy Spirit in order that we would have the power to repent of our sins and live in obedience to God. And so if you are here and you're not a child of God, it's my prayer that you see the God of grace in Jesus Christ, that you would repent of your sins and walk in obedience for the first time by receiving him as Lord and Savior. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gospel, this good news of what God has done, is the primary motivation for our obedience to God, to pursue holiness, to live as elect exiles in this hostile world. The great Puritan John Owen wrote this, the foundation of true holiness and true Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel. So when the doctrine of the gospel is neglected, forsaken, and corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. This is why Peter roots his readers in gospel truth before commanding them to obedience. I hope after reflecting on these verses, you've come to see why God saved you. Yes, because he loves you. Yes, for the praise of his own name, but you were also saved to be holy. God has done everything necessary in and through Jesus to make it possible for us to put our hope and faith confidently in him alone and to be able to live lives in obedience to him. A firm foundation in the grace of God leads to hope and holiness. Let's pray.